Welcome to the Run From The Norm podcast, where we dive into the profound impact of curiosity, individuality, and authentic self-expression within the running community. I'm your host, Jake Reynolds, and today I am excited to share with you a very thoughtful conversation between me and my good friend and mentor, Sid Sullivan. Please join me as we explore what inspires and motivates a unique individual to break free from the ordinary and truly run from the norm. Sid, thank you for, first off, for a great run this morning. That was awesome. I appreciate the tour of the hood out here. We got to run down by the water and uh, see some geese and some great conversation. And I kind of wanted to jump first into something you mentioned a few days ago, and we were talking about running, and you were just saying that you had a very interesting you know, foray into running, and I'd like to kind of start there. <laughs> is, uh, where did you grow up, and what got you motivated to, to get out and run? Yeah, I grew up in Springfield, Oregon, which is connected to Eugene, Oregon, Track town. Yeah, Track Town USA. And growing up in the 70s, it was definitely Track Town USA. And virtually everywhere you go, there was somebody running and a track meet going on and that kind of stuff. And so naturally for me and my family, we just joined the local um, Parks and Recs track team. And uh, maybe that was just a way that my mom could get us out of the house. I don't know. But there's seven of you. Seven right? kids in our family. And I was the second oldest. And my recollection is maybe three or four of us were on the track team, but yeah, we, we did that for years and we would go and do practice at the local high school a couple of days a week. And then on Thursdays, they would have an all comers meet over at the Hayward field, which is just the oh, legendary Hayward track field. at university oh, yeah. of Oregon. And I loved it. It was just great. And we would just sign up for as many events. We could do long jump, 400, 200, whatever. And uh, man, we, we did everything, ran barefoot, ran with our shoes, did everything, just a blast. And that was really what got me into just outside activity, having fun, just doing the, the running scene. But it was definitely something that you could tell because it wasn't just a few people at these meets. It was hundreds, thousands of people would show up for these all-comer meets, and we loved it. It wasn't until a few years later that I really started getting into the running scene I grew up in a, in a football family. My dad was a football coach in the high school level. And naturally, I wanted to play football because that's what we did. We went to high school football games. So I, in the eighth grade, was a measly 89 pounds. I know that because I wrestled 89 pounds that year. And uh, I was on the kickoff team. And on the kickoff, I ran down to tackle the guy Um who received the football. His name was Doug Durbin. I know that because I had gone to school with him at a, a school before, but uh, he was much bigger than me. And he hit me like a freight train. <laughs> I, I ended up tackling him, but um, it just knocked me silly. I got up and literally went over to the opposing team's sideline. My teammates brought me over to my side. Oh my gosh. The next thing I remember was eating dinner with my family. Holy smokes. And I'm sure that you know, there were other things that happened. I caught a couple passes during the game, but it knocked me silly. You feel like you got a concussion? I don't maybe. know. I have no idea. Back then, you don't know what anything. You just dust the dirt off. I just and go know back that I, game. yeah, you just kind of back in those days, it was called walk it off. And I walked it off, but I don't remember walking it off. And uh, I told my dad, Dad, I'm going to finish the season because I'm going to tough, tough it out, but I'm done. I'm not going to be the poster child for CTE. And so I decided that running was going to be my thing. I had some friends that ran. And uh, that next uh, spring in junior high, I went out for track. And it's been a long, long process and love ever since. Uh, I think I told you earlier today, uh, by the time the end of this year hits, I'll have hit my 75,000 miles in my lifetime. That's absolutely crazy. That yeah. is definitely a commitment. And I told you I was reading an article from 2016, and in it, it was referencing you had also ran for college. And I didn't know that about you, that you had actually ran track for for uh, Oregon, we yes. clarified the distinction be between which university you attended. Yeah, we don't talk about the people 40 miles north. Um, <laughs> that is absolutely forbidden Verboten. in this house. Um, yeah, interesting thing for me. In high school, I was just an average runner. 
I was not real good, but I loved it. I loved running with like my friends. It seems like you were just athletic in general because uh, I didn't know that you wrestled too. Yeah, my dad was a wrestling coach too. <laughs> he did that, and I did it because it was fun. You know, and I was real successful. I wrestled varsity as a freshman, sophomore, uh-huh. and but I, I just decided that running was what I wanted to do. And so rather than doing wrestling season, I would just train through the winter with my running buddies. Hey, what did you like so much about running? What it was, was it just, that, that gravitated? It was just fun, man, being out there and running with your buddies and, you know, testing your body and seeing what the body can do. Body's just an amazing thing, and it mm-hmm. was just so fun. But um, for me, being just an average runner, I, I always gave up my all and tried to do my best. But my junior year in high school, the best I could do was make the JV districts. And in Oregon, it's extremely competitive being this track capital yeah, of the world. I can imagine. And uh, I, at one point, my coach, I, he told me early on in my career, he's like, if you just work hard, you'll, you'll go to state when you're a senior. And I was always like, yeah, right. There's just <laughs> no way that's going to happen. But during the summer, between my junior and senior year, I came over to Idaho with my friend who was the defending state champion in the 800 meters. Um, he was my best friend. And he had won it as his junior year. And we came over for a meet that he was in, a junior Olympics meet. And I didn't qualify for it. And we did a workout at Boise State University. Oh. And we had some other friends that were with us. And I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden things just clicked. Really? And I was running just as fast as they were. We were doing this workout. And I'm like, what the heck? And all of a sudden, just kind of just the speed just turned on. And you're not sure what it was? I, no, I don't know if it's just all of a sudden, all of those years of running, just everything clicked. But literally over the course of that summer, things just clicked and I just got fast. And so cross country that year did okay. And then this, the winter time had a great indoor season where I, we only ran two meets, but I ran pretty good. I could tell I might have a good year. And my friend who was defending state champion in the 800 meters, and I wanted to run the 800, and we had another friend who was also moving up from the 400 meters to run the 800. And so we had three of us, and only two people from every district qualified to the state meet. And so it was extremely difficult, unless you hit a very, very difficult um, standard at your district meet, which was 154.8. And so, but we all wanted to run the 800 meters. <laughs> we all ran it at the district meet and all of us qualified for the state meet. Oh, wow. And then at state, again, extremely deep in the, the competition. So when you're lining up, how many people are you lining up against in a race? Because of the number of competitors and how deep the fields can get in the state of Oregon, they only allow eight in the final. And so we would have preliminary race rounds on Thursday, and then the finals would be on Saturday. And it would just be as many preliminaries as it took to get through the entire field. Just to get you to the eight people for the final. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so we all qualified for the final, and then at the state meet, we went one, two, three in the, really? in the, in the 800 meters. First time it's ever happened in the state of Oregon where one school swept the, uh, the, uh, the 800 meters. And, and then all of a sudden... I was on the radar. Colleges were like, oh, wait, who's this kid? We never heard of him before. Yeah, that's right, because he ran the JV districts last year. <laughs> and everything had just changed when and you it just made ju- that trip yeah. out here. So when you when you got here and everything kind of switched for you, did you change up your training? No. Everything was the same? Everything was the same. Coach was the Volume same. And everything, and everything. Yep, everything was the same. Interesting. And it's just probably maturity yeah. and whatever. But, yeah, my, my uh, high school coach, he said, you know what? Uh, maybe what you ought to do is consider walking on at the University of Oregon. And so that's what I did. I walked on at the University of Oregon. My best friend, who had also won the state meet again, so he's three-time state meet champion uh, in the middle distance, 800 and 1,500. He was full ride. And so I walked on, and shortly after walking on, I ended up getting a stress fracture. It was terrible. But my spring season of track and field had a phenomenal year. Mm. I mean, phenomenal year. And it just put me on the radar. And I was running every single varsity meet for the University of Oregon, from a kid who was running JV districts to uh, running uh, every single meet for all the because, University uh, of Oregon. All because Doug 
cleaned your clock on a. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. It's crazy the little things yeah. that make such a yeah. big difference in the trajectory of your life. Yeah. So you said you walked on uh, for Oregon. How intimidating was that then? Well, at the University of Oregon, when when we would show up for a distance workout, there would be 60, 70 athletes there. And some of those were post-collegiate athletes. Um, Alberto Salazar, Rudy Chapman, Don Cleary. These oh, are phenomenal athletes that would show up when us regular athletes would show up. But the the depth was just unbelievable. And there's been books written about the men of Oregon. Oh, yeah. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what it was. It was incredibly overwhelming for somebody who just graduated from high school to step into this program that it was just so storied and full of um, amazing competition. But what I quickly realized is that you don't have to be the best of the best to run with the best of the best. You just have to be excellent. And if you just go out and do your best and you're excellent at what you do, it'll all work out. And that's exactly what happened for me. And where would you say that came from, that perspective? Because it's something that even throughout your life and career, I would say that it's something that you seem to have embraced. Just Well, a lot of that came from the coaches. My coach at University of Oregon was Bill Dillinger. He's a former bronze medalist in the uh, Tokyo Olympics. And, I mean, he's a legendary coach for his time. And I had the, the luxury and, and the benefit of, of training underneath him. And he always had remarkable ways of motivating people. And um, again, I, I was new and wasn't supposed to be much of anything. And all of a sudden, I'm thrown on this center stage being a pretty good athlete. And at one point, he, he called me into his office and he said, Sid, um, you're running against UCLA this weekend. And I'm going to give you uh, this jersey and I want you to put it on. It was the day of the meet. And I, you don't even have a, a sweats, but you're running. You've earned your spot, and you're gonna, I'm going to give you my sweat top. And so I put the the jersey, the University of Oregon jersey on, and and he said, "There's a there's a legacy that comes with wearing this jersey, and there's a great honor and pride." And um, I put the sweat top on, and he he and I were the only two there. And he he turned to me. He says, "Now go go and win. Go and win." What was that feeling and Jake, like? All along, he knew I wasn't going to win. I mean, the guy from UCLA was the defending Pac-10 champion. The guy from our team eventually won the NCAA championship that year. I, I knew I wasn't going to win. So, why do you think he did that? The reason he was saying is, is he was telling me that you don't have to be first place to be a winner. Mm. First place isn't always winning. What you have to That's do awesome. is go out and be the best that you can. And if you can be the best that you can be, you can still be a winner. That's awesome. And I, it's always been, it's always stuck with me. And it's always felt that if I can give excellence in everything that I do, and back then it was running, if excellence is what I can be surrounded by, then I'll be a winner, even if I'm second place. And the whole mentality is this, is that if first place, if we only awarded first place to the best of the best, then we'd only have one brain surgeon, you know? Mm, yeah. You know? It's interesting that you that you looked at it like that because I think there could be a lot of people who would look at it from another side where they would think, you know, well, why is he giving me this thing if, you know, if I'm not going to go out and get first place and could take it as a completely different um, gesture than what it, it seemed to really have been. And, I mean, you obviously took it and, and it's, Served you well. Oh, it was phenomenal. And I, I remember that day, um, I ended up getting third in the race that day. And I was sitting by myself later on, just changing my shoes. And he came up, he put his arm around me, and he said, Sid, what a phenomenal race. He said, uh, you did exactly what I wanted you to do today. He goes, we need team points. And even though it's an individual race, it's a team event today. And he goes, you did, you did phenomenal. Ah. And I'm so proud of you. And, and he literally put his arm around me. It was, I was just shocked. And then he said to me, he goes, you're not done. And I was like, just taken back. He goes, you're running the mile relay today. And oh, I, wow. I wasn't a quarter miler. <laughs> He's like, you're running the mile relay today. 
But he believed in you. And he's just like, you're doing it. You put in the work. And I'm just like, okay, you got it. Yeah. That's crazy. That's really cool. Yeah. And actually, since I've never ran organized track, or I hadn't even thought about the fact that you have team points. And so he's not encouraging you just to go out and try to win for yourself, but you're also winning for the team yeah. in that way. Uh, that's that's the whole mentality. I mean, it literally was the men of Oregon. We do things together. We run together. We are together. And uh, I, I think that kind of made me grow up. I mean, from a boy to being a part of this group of, uh, of men. who That's were, awesome. Who were, yeah. After you experienced that, then you came to Boise State. Did you run at yeah. Boise State as well? So I ran there at University of Oregon, and at the conclusion of that first year, I had such a good year, they said, hey, you're not on scholarship, and we want to keep you here. And so they reimbursed me my tuition and some books, and that was to, to tie me to the university. And I made the decision the following year, at the end of the following year, to go on LDS service mission. And I did. And that was a two-year mission. When I came back, Title IX had changed the, the scholarship landscape significantly from, I believe, 22 scholarships to 11 and a half oh, wow. for men's track. I didn't have any money at the time. And so that's when I transferred to, to Boise State with their help and uh, finished up my eligibility at Boise State, and that's what brought me to Boise. So when you go off and you and you went on your mission and you have that two-year period, does everything get paused and, and, until you get back? So it's yeah. just you're picking right back up yeah. where you left off? Uh-huh. Okay. Except for I was out of shape. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take you to get back into oh. uh, running form? Yeah, Jake, Yeah, I think you've probably been here before, but most of us know that getting into shape takes, it takes eight to ten time. weeks. Yeah. yeah, But it came back so naturally. And then uh, you ran track for Boise State? I did. And yeah. how did that go? I loved it. It was a great experience. And I uh, ran the 800 and quarter mile, and they made me run cross country. And so I did that. Didn't really care for it that much, but uh, I, I did it anyways. But I, I loved the experience. And Track's just it was in your it, blood. Track is it's been in my blood. I mean, I, I did it since I was a, a young kid, and... Uh, I just, I've always loved it. How did the experience at Boise State compare to Oregon? Um, well, at Oregon, we had a lot of athletes and a lot of people that just came to be a part of the system and the program and the history were at Boise State. Many times I was the only 800-meter runner. Hmm. And so I did a lot of training myself or with a select few other people. Um, so that was a little different. Of course, we didn't have the coaches that we had at University of Oregon. But, you know, in, in hindsight, I look at it in perspective. The reality is that college athletics is not all about college athletics. Mm -hmm. There's another aspect to that, and that's about education and about creating individuals and people and community members and so forth. And my hat goes off to Boise State University for teaching me not only to be an athlete, but to be a good citizen and to be a good person and to create good values. And they taught me that and they did a great job at that. And it just kind of was a stepping stone above what I had at University of Oregon. And then uh, would you say that what you learned at Boise State was integral in how you moved yourself forward then in your career? Because uh, you, you got a very, I would say, a very successful career in leadership. I would say it's twofold. Um, my running career taught me really five or six things that carried me through my my profession and my my personal life. And when you marry that with my skill set that I got, my education, which was a, a business accounting degree, the combination of that really put me in a position of being able to advance and to grow my career. Did you have a specific mentor or somebody that helped you put all that together? Or would you say that this is just something that you've been driven to do and you just pulled all these different pieces and found unique ways to combine them? Yeah, Jake, I, I've always felt that, you know, you got to be careful who your mentors are. Mm -hmm. If you choose mentors based on what they say, you can have problems, maybe. You got to choose mentors based on what they do that's great advice. i've always tried to look at my mentors as individuals that i can look up to based on what they do and there have been mentors 
all the way back from my early childhood that start from my, of course, my parents, but also people that have kind of navigated my life along the way. And, um, you know, Hillary Clinton says it takes a village and it really has taken a village of mentors in my case, again, not by people who have told me what to do, but mentors that have acted a certain way. And I looked at that and said, that's who I want to be. How do you feel about books as mentors? Jake, I, I really was never a real big reader until about maybe eight or nine years ago. And I probably should have done a lot more of that. The reality is that now um, reading is an outlet and a way for me to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, there are things that people have um, learned in their life and they conceptualize that and put that on paper. And it's a great way of understanding um, not only their experiences, but also how mine might be like theirs. Or if I ever come across an experience like theirs, it might be the same way. And the last thing I want to do is have to repeat somebody's history if I can avoid it. It's an interesting uh, interesting way to look at it. I hadn't actually considered that. We've discussed books. I love to read. And as I've been on the search for mentors and people to help guide me along my path and and books seem to be something that I would always gravitate to just because they were um, easily accessible. Yeah. But I hadn't actually thought about it like that. And that's actually a really great point that yeah. part of, you know, the intent of like all these conversations and this whole thing is trying to define your unique self and what authenticity means to you. And if you get so consumed digesting everybody else's sense of uniqueness and you can kind of get lost in yeah. that and forget to make your own path. Yeah. Which I would say you definitely have done that. Well, Jake, um, you know, and I hear the word authenticity. I mean, it's not a word that's in my vocabulary very often. It's a buzzword right Um, now for sure. Authenticity to me is used typically when I hear somebody talking about Mexican food or Chinese food. But with me, you get who you get. And I'm not afraid to just be who I am. Uh, Why do you think that is? Because nowadays so many people struggle with that. What is it that just gives you the the freedom to embrace that. Ah, oh, man, it just individuals are constantly going through these phases of self-evaluation, trying to figure out who they are and why they are and why they were affected by this and, and why they're dependent on this thing or so forth. And the reality is sometimes they'll never find the answer or they're looking for something they'll never find. And in my case, I don't care. I already know who I am and I'm happy where I'm at. And if I surround myself with people that I like and people that I enjoy being around, I am who I am. Well, it goes back to what you said, then you're winning at that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a left turn, but uh, Saturday runs at the Y. Yeah. When did you get involved with that and what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I've been running with the, the group at the YMCA on Saturday mornings, typically at 7 a.m. And I'm going to say I've been doing that for 20 years. That's crazy. And originally, I was running with another friend of mine on Saturdays at 9 o'clock. And what was happening is I'd run at 9 and I wouldn't get home till 10, 30, 11. It was just chewing into the day. And I remember Richie Harris over at Bandana saying, hey, these other guys here are running over at the Y at 7 o'clock. And I'd, I'd already known some of them, so I thought, well, I'll just go run with them. And the first day, they go and run like, I don't know, 16 miles. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? I can't do <laughs> this tra- stuff. track guy, and oh, now you're hitting the trails no. and everything else. Yeah, they're just phenomenal people. You, don't, you can't go wrong with running people. Yeah, They're just some of the greatest. And so I just found that, being around my friends and running with them was just the best. I don't care where we were at, at the foothills or down by the river or wherever. It's a great community. And uh, they're some of the best friends I have today. And that's why I like running with them. You said that's 20 years now? Yeah. When did that all start? Do you know when it? You know, the the Y Striders is the original group. Okay. And I, I bet you it's been going on for 30 or 40 years. I don't know. 
Awesome. It's been a long time, but the group that I've been involved with is, yeah, just 20 some years. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about this on the run this morning. And obviously through this conversation, running is such a huge component to your life and who you are and the person that you've become. You went through recently a difficulty where you had a medical issue that kind of changed everything for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, three years ago, I started to notice one week that my heart rate was becoming irregular the rhythm was just not right. And I pay very close to the dynamics of my body. Um, I would take my heart rate every single day. Um, yeah, I, I just, I was very in tune with my body. So you were feeling that something was And I could just off. tell something was off. And just after, through the day-to-day or was this uh, like at the, n- at the end of a run? No, it would happen just at random times. Interesting. And I would feel it mainly at the bottom end of my throat, upper chest. And the rhythm was just different. And after it happening maybe three or four times, I decided I need to go to the doctor. I think I know what this is. I think it's AFib. And so while it was happening, the fourth or fifth time, something like that, I went over to the doctor's office and I said, I think I'm an AFib. And they said, no, everybody thinks you're an AFib, but we'll check you out. And so they put me up on an EKG and within one second of being hooked up, they said, you're an AFib. <laughs> oh, yeah, I already know that. <laughs> and they said, you need to go see a cardiologist. And so I went and saw the cardiologist. And the cardiologist says, tell me a little bit about your lifestyle. So I told her a little about my running and everything. Were that you still done. Doing, you're still doing track workouts? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, everything was normal. I mean, I, was, I did full-on workouts in, in AFib. We have runs in AFib, everything. Holy smokes. And so, I, and I explained this to her and she says, I, I have a suspicion that you have run too much in your life. And because of that um, aerobic work that you've done, you have what's called athlete's heart. And basically what that means is that you've remodeled your heart physically. And because of that, you've remodeled it electrically. And she goes, we're going to go and do an MRI on your heart, and we're going to confirm that. So they did. They did an MRI, and the left atrium came back at 2.8 times larger than a normal athlete's left atrium. Holy smokes. And when you look at it in the model, it just looked weird. I mean, the heart is supposed to look like this, not with a big bulge on it. And so she says, you have to stop what you're doing. No more anaerobic, no more racing. And as a result of that, your heart rate cannot jump up. You need to keep it low, 120, 130, rarely above 130. I'd rather have it be around 100, which is difficult when running. And I've been running 50, 60 miles a week for decades. And she says, no, you need to take days off. Just like that. And uh, I was fine with it. Really? I mean, I, I... I absolutely missed the racing because I was racing all the way up to that point um, regularly, uh, cross country track and everything. And, but I just cold turkeyed it and decided I'll do what the doctor says. And so my training went from about 60 miles a week to now 25 to 30 miles a week. I'm a casual jogger and I love it. That's crazy. Such a drastic change and it wasn't, like the end of your life or anything you just embraced it and this is the new normal and this is what i have to do it is the new norm and that's the way i am and i love it and now when i go out for a run i can stop and enjoy the scenery and just take my time and if i don't run a day big deal and my doctor's totally happy with it and yeah i'm i'm just doing what the doctor says i should do and unfortunately there are people that don't and that's when it can turn into a much more serious issue. The nice thing is, is that you have all these memories and that you've done all these things that are never going to go away. Yeah. And uh, so now moving forward, it just it just looks a little bit different on, on yeah. how you approach it. But it sounds like, if anything, you have more gratitude for the opportunities when you can get out. Yeah. 
which like this morning, I mean, seven, seven and a half miles. It's that's phenomenal. That's still a, yeah. yeah, it's still a good distance by any, yeah. by any stretch. And yeah, it was a great time. Stopped yeah. to look at the geese, you know, floating around in the water and chatting along the way. So you're really, I guess, not not missing out. You're just appreciating it that much more when you do get a chance to yeah. get out and engage. Well, and you know, I've had a great running career, and I've had some extremely good highs, and some great competition and great success, and I've learned a lot from running. Actually, that's a great segue because I wanted to ask you that. What have you learned through running? that you've been able to transition and utilize into your day-to-day life? Oh, I alluded to some of this earlier. You know, there's really maybe four or five things. You know, first of all, running has taught me um, that you have to have fun in life. Yes. Life is about having fun. And when I was growing up, that's what we did. And if you're doing something that is hard that's okay too. But if you're not having fun at what you're doing, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. And and so running's taught me that. Running's also taught me how to lose. Mm. Um, and, and for that matter, how to lose with grace. Because much of my career wasn't about winning. Much of my career was about losing. Um, there's only one r- winner in a race. And a lot of times that wasn't me. I had a lot of seconds and thirds. And that's okay but there's a lot of grace that comes with losing. But just because you lose doesn't mean you're a failure. And I have taken that not only in my personal life, but also in the business world, that I have to know that just because I didn't get 100% of what I was looking for, 98% was still really, really good. And that really was a catalyst in a lot of the business decisions that I made, especially as I started to look at some of the successes that didn't hit all the points I wanted and became a catalyst for some of the other decisions that I made in business. But also running taught me how to compete. Competition without um, training really doesn't go anywhere. And so... Um, I, I've spent a lot of time in my running career learning how to train and how to prepare. And I've loved the aspect of, of training my body and preparing for competition. And competing is the ultimate. Um, that Those 10, 12 um, minutes on the high level down to a, maybe a minute and 50 seconds on the low level in my competitions were just phenomenal, and I just loved them. But the the best was that maybe a one or two seconds between the on your mark, get set time, that feeling, that rush of energy. But training and leading up to that was just amazing. And it taught me that in order for me to compete in the business world and as an individual in any aspect that I'm in, I have to prepare I have to prepare for a meeting. I have to prepare for anything that I'm doing. And if I don't, then there's the chance that I'm not going to be ready uh, for the competition that I'm in. And then I would probably say, you know, running's also taught me that I need to make sure that um, I I recognize the importance of having a coach Mm. I have somebody that I can look to um, who can evaluate and um, give pointers and those types of things. And in many cases, individuals have, as we've talked about, mentors, um, whether it may be a friend or a boss or something like that. Other cases, people look to uh, faith aspects and so forth in their life. And all of those things have an impact in my own life. Um, but running has taught me that if you try to carry life out by yourself, then you're probably not going to succeed. Self-coaches, difficult. It's hard to succeed self-coaching. That's a great point. So would you say that this all fed your confidence, but in a way to rally people behind a common vision in the direction that you see for, for the future of a company? Yeah, definitely running has definitely helped 
prepare me for that aspect of my life. Um, when I finally got to the point that I was the leader, it became very clear to me that leaders have to lead. And leaders lead. They don't dictate. Mm. We don't need dictators in this world. We don't need people to point fingers. The best leaders out there are leaders that lead by example and leaders that join hands, roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty, that kind of stuff. And for me, I could not ask my employees to do something that I wasn't willing to do myself. And so I felt that if I was going to lead the employees that I now had responsibility over, it was important for me to make sure that I was going to do exactly what I was going to ask them to do. And there's a great confidence that comes in leading individuals when you know that they are going to follow and join with you in the cause that you have. I mentioned to you earlier that part of what we have in the company that I ran is knowing our purpose. And once you know your purpose and what your core values are and you stick to those types of things and you get buy-in by employees, it's amazing what you can do. And that's how I ran the business. That's a great point. So you mentioned the core values and you're sharing your approach by example. Then how are you getting so many perspectives aligned to push this thing forward? You know, a lot of times people just say, hey, money's not everything. And you know what? They're right. Money is part of things. That's why people work. But the reality is there's this whole thing of culture and environment. And people like to be included. And we like to be a part of things. Mm. We like to know that there's value in us. We got to know that what we're doing has value. And when people feel valued, they feel purpose and they feel as if they're contributing. And how do you make them feel valued? By giving them the ability to make decisions. When somebody says, I want you to go and buy this type of material or you must do this, you take away their creativity and you take away their decision making. However, the flip side is this. If you go to the janitor and say, hey, here's your role. This is just what the expectations are. You make the decisions. And when people are able to make the decisions themselves within a certain scope, they feel a sense of ownership and a sense of pride. It's extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tried to instill. Now, granted, we didn't do everything perfect at the company that I ran. But what we did do is we tried our best to create a culture where people felt valued and empowered. It sounds like with the honesty and transparency that you led by, you're transparent in the fact that this is still a great opportunity for, for learning. And then you're realigning with your team on how do we collectively work together to continue to move forward and not lose sight of our our mission. Yeah, Jake, it goes back to the whole running thing again. Mm -hmm. Just because you didn't finish first place didn't mean you lost. And even though you didn't win the race, you still had room for improvement and evaluation. Well, that's what I always felt that, man, if we could go back and evaluate our performance and we could collectively work to improve, we could improve the, 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 the company and the, the operations of what we're doing. And what we tried to instill within our company that came from my running background was this concept of continuous improvement. I called it CIP, continuous improvement. And if everybody in the company could focus on improving and continuous improvement, then what we have today will be better tomorrow. We will never regress. We will always evaluate our last performance. And as a result of that, what we gather as a company will always be a greater return in the end. I love that. And it seems like you even took things a step farther with the inclusion of, the, of your team 
by your company moving to employee-owned. Yeah, and and that was one of the things that we did. And when when the owners of our company decided to sell our company, they wanted to retire. I made the proposal to them. Why don't you sell it to the employees? Why don't we become an ESOP? They had no idea what we were talking about. Did you even know I what did. to do at that point? Of I, how to make that happen? I did. Okay. Yeah, I I had done quite a bit of research on employee ownership, and back in my Boise State days, I I had done some research on employee ownership so i knew the background of it and so when i when i broached the subject to them they were like we don't know what you're talking about (laughs) so i said hey just just give me three hours to bring in an expert and teach you about employee ownership they bought into it and once we we did the transaction and we became an esop an employee-owned company they turned the company over to me and said, you, you be the president, you run the company. And my whole premise was built around taking an employee and turning them into an employee owner. And owners think differently than employees. Owners clean up after themselves. Owners make their beds. Owners just simply do things that regular employees don't. See, a lot of times people think that an owner just takes extended vacations and drives a Ferrari, but the reality isn't that way. Employee, employee owners or owners, they have sleepless nights. They get gray hair. They worry. They worry about what they're engaged in and the involvement that they have in something because they care. And if I could get the employees to turn from being an employee who just gets a paycheck and clocks in and clocks out to somebody who cares about what they're doing to the point that maybe they don't sleep well at night because they're so engaged in it and they want the company to succeed. We will outperform our competitors every single day. Without going too far into it, you really did because you ended up, the company had an exit. I believe you sold to maybe an, uh, an investment. Yeah, we sold to a private equity company um, after growing the value about uh, tenfold. That's and, amazing. And, and those employees are the ones that made the, the money. They're the ones that ended up with a, a retirement system. Gives me gooseies. I know. can't see them. I got goosebumps I now. It's, I mean, it's see, that is an amazing story that yeah. you don't hear enough of. You grew this amazing thing that everybody followed, followed and bought in with your vision and you kind of took them to the promised land, really. I mean, it, it it turned into something that was probably beyond anything that they could have ever imagined yeah. and just completely changed so many people's lives in yeah. such a direct way. It's amazing. 153 people that had retirements that were just phenomenal. That's amazing. I mean, just phenomenal. But Jake, I have to tell you, when the reins were turned over to me, my proposal um, to the company and to our board was, I'm done making pencils. Pencils means I have to compete against the Chinese. And I and can't you'll compete. never win on cost. I, I won't win. Yeah. I got to make something hard. I got to do something extremely difficult. And what I'm getting at is this is becoming full circle in our discussion here today. Going back to this whole concept, what I learned at, at Oregon, this whole men of Oregon, this whole culture. When you when you when you join an organization that has the ability to create legacy through hard work and create create honor, integrity, and honesty, and a sense of togetherness and working hard together, which is what I learned at Oregon, what I learned at Boise State, what I learned in my running career, that you just don't get stuff handed to you in a silver platter it comes through hard work. That's what happened in this employee ownership. I'm getting these recruits, these employees, if you will, to come into this program. And I'm trying to bring them into this fold and teach them how to be employee owners so that they can reap the reward. And while they aren't going to be the best of the best, they're going to reap the reward for becoming excellent. And it's all about being excellent. It's not all about always chasing first place. And I think we get lost in that. You're chasing something that isn't necessarily measured against yourself. Yeah. If you just strip it down to what 
excellence truly means to you, then you're accomplishing those goals, whether you came in first place, second, third, or that's awesome. And I think that even has continued as you retired from the company and your passion for service has continued because now you've even moved into where you're spending a lot of your time with nonprofits. I see a lot of stuff pop up on your social media feed where you're you're interacting with schools and different organizations, whether you're on a board or whether you're just there to support. Can you talk a little bit about that and about what still continuing to be in service means to you now? Yeah. Um, when you're 54 years of age and you find yourself in a position of being able to retire, um, there's some self-evaluation that goes on. And amongst myself and my wife, we're like, there's far too much that goes on in our world that we can have an effect on. And so we made a commitment to each other that we were going to give back. Um, what I explained to you earlier, it was our second mountain. It's, it is time for us to give back, um, give back to our community, which we love so dearly, and to give back to our, our neighbors, our friends and people that, uh, that we love, and then to people that are just underprivileged. Um, there's just far too many of them. And so part of that for me was going out and finding opportunities where I could take my skill set and give those skills away for free by serving on corporate boards and nonprofits. So I, I serve on uh, boards that help um, victims of crisis and abuse. Um, I work with the different technical schools in the state to help promote the trades and get uh, kids who may not fit the, the norm of going to a four-year university, but want to work with their hands and become skilled tradesmen, um, helping them do that. And I would so love to see more of that. I too. do a, a lot in help promoting the, the different technical schools in the state, as well as working with the Title I schools here in our value, uh, valley. Um, these are underprivileged uh, kids, refugees, others that are coming in, trying to get an education and learn and grow and it uh, is awesome to be able to see kids uh, each and every day with a smile because we've provided an opportunity to them. And um, that's what's happened to me. I look back in my, my uh, career, not only professionally, but also running uh, in my uh, personal faith, um, where people have given me an opportunity. And when I have the ability to give others an opportunity, it's so rewarding. And that's where I'm at now, as I just want to figure out ways to give opportunities to others. The thing I love about you is you are so giving. And it's clear to me just how much you truly feel and believe in everything that you're saying. There's nothing that is lip service here. You truly are a, a person that is full of compassion, that wants to see people succeed, that gives of yourself to be in the service of others. And I think it's refreshing and it's not something we see as much as I think we'd all like to. And it's absolutely inspiring to me. Quite a while back, I sat down with you and we had a conversation that kind of started broaching these topics. And as I've got to know you over the years, 100%, you live by everything that you speak. And I love that about you. So Sid, I truly appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and chat with me. And I, I would like to ask you one question um, to close this on. And it's a question that... Uh, our good friend Wayne has, has posed to me to where I continually think about it on an ongoing basis, and that is, what does legacy mean to you, and what's the legacy that you want to leave behind? Oh, wow. Man, legacy. Tough one, right? Yeah, legacy. I'm not, you know, I've never really thought about, like, what kind of legacy I want to leave. I mean, I think about the legacy of other people, I mean, there's some amazing legacies that people have. You know, I think most of all, um, you know, the legacy that I want to, to leave is mainly that, that I love my family, I love my friends, I love my community, and that is not shown by my words, it's shown by my actions. That's kind of who I am, and I think if people look at me and say, his actions speak louder than his words, then so be it. Um, I've always felt that the only way that I can serve my, my family and my country and my God is by serving my community. That's the way that I serve those three individuals, those three people, those three entities. 
and uh, that's who I am. So I guess my legacy is going to be my actions and what I do uh, in, in those areas. Which is awesome because, again, it fully aligns because you have walked the walk, and it's pretty amazing. Well, let's say this. Let's say not walk the walk. Let's say run the run. There because, we go. Because uh, I'm a runner. and uh, You always will be. I'll always be a runner. And, Jake, uh, thank you so much for letting me do this. It's been awesome. And yeah. uh, it's been great reflection for me to think about my running career and how it's affected me not only personally but also my professional and and personal life so thank you awesome no you're absolutely welcome and uh for uh, anybody listening that wants to be able to follow you whether you know out on a run or some of these great opportunities that you have to interact in the community where could they connect with you oh man i'm one of the worst there is on social media but i think i'm at sid sullivan on instagram and on facebook sid sullivan and uh my my nieces and nephews are telling me that uh I need to be more of an influencer. I did have one of my videos at 1.4 million views this year. Didn't even realize it. And yep, you're, you're making making more of an impact. Oh, yeah, I'm a massive, massive influencer here. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> We're going to see you on TikTok in no time. No TikTok. All right, Sid, thank, thank you, you so much. Right. I appreciate you. Thank you to my friend and guest, Sid Sullivan, for joining me on this episode of the Run From The Norm podcast. And as always, I would like to extend my sincere appreciation to you, the listener, for your continued support and encouragement. You can find the Run From The Norm podcast on streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as on our host platform, Podbean. You can also send comments and suggestions directly to me at runfromthenorm at gmail.com. Please also visit our website at www.runfromthenorm.com where you can sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on new podcast episode releases, grab a bitchin' hat or t-shirt from our store, or you can use the social media links to connect with me on Instagram or Facebook so we can continue to grow this merry tribe of outdoor adventure seekers. And just like that, episode three is a wrap. I wish you health and happiness as you continue your journey throughout the day, and I hope we have succeeded in our mission to motivate with compassion, listen without judgment, inspire with curiosity, one person at a time. 